You are listening to the History of Religions and Their Gods, hosted by me, the skeptical ghost heathen. to do this. History. A brief look back into time of ancient civilizations cultures, and the religious beliefs. Who were their gods and what was their purpose? Were they simply mascots that would lead a great army into war? Or did they serve as a way to control the masses? Or did they simply represent a people seeking legitimization? This show will analyze the history of religions and their gods through time beginning with the Babylonian supreme gods to Jesus Christ. And of course, the fallout of having gods in the 21st century. Hello, heathens, and welcome back to the show. Well, we just wrapped up the 4th of July weekend, for those of you who celebrate the 4th of July, living in the United States, obviously. To the rest of you, I hope you had a great weekend. Um, I did plenty of barbecuing, probably had too much beer, <laughs> but um, had a ton of food as well. But hey, anyway, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for coming back, and if you've been here since season one, oh baby, well you guys, you got some serious, serious endurance going on there. But we are now, we're in season five, as you know, and now we're rolling into episode three. And I know I'm hopping around a little bit. The last two episodes, Slaughter of the Innocents and Shoah, were very, very deep-natured and um, actually kind of concluded the essay, if you would, um, if you have in hand that 800-and-some-odd-page um, report that I had written over five years ago or so. Um, so there's still some stuff that I left out of the podcast that was included on there. For instance, you know, things were happening, you know, with the Incas, you know, South America, um, you know, what was happening that was concurrent with what was happening, you know, 2,500, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Because um, I pretty much stayed within the evolution of Christianity and I didn't really touch on any of that other stuff. So maybe that'll come up in another season. But now we're talking about Mark. I really want to talk about... I think bringing to light how I am proving and demonstrating that he was writing post-war, post-Jewish-Roman War, that 66 to the year 70 CE Jewish-Roman War. Okay, I'm not using any of the conspiracy theories. I'm not even going that road. No, the Romans did not invent fucking Jesus. No, that was far from it. But there was a need for him from the different messianic groups that were out there compared to what the, other, what the other options were. Imminent fucking war. And so Mark basically uses his documentary. I'm not even going to call it a gospel anymore. That's what Christians call it. His documentary on the war. 
and how he's using it as a message to convey multiple different points, whether it's theological, sociological, political. Those were the points that he was making with his Jesus. And that's what, going forward for a handful of episodes, maybe to the end of the season, of the season five, is demonstrating that it was a political document. many reasons to doubt the gospel, according to Mark, as anything other than a documentary on the Roman-Jewish wars that took place between 66 and 70 of the Common Era. Unfortunately, for the Christian faith, this presents a huge problem, because the gospels are the only evidence for their Jesus, and are supposed to have been written by people who actually knew Jesus when he was alive during the 20s and the 30s. But in contrast, when reading Mark's documentary against the events of the war that took place between the years 66 and 70, it actually really appears to be about something else altogether. Additionally, Mark's documentary also seems to follow the flow of events based on Josephus' book, The Wars of the Jews, which is a complete recording of the events leading up to and the conclusion of the war. There seems to be just way too many purposeful, with quotations over my head, purposeful parallels of events between Jesus and Vespasian to be a coincidence. The Jewish Wars was released to the public in the year 75. So if this is correct, then that would place Mark's gospel sometime after 75, and perhaps even as late as 80. 50 years after the supposed fact happened. Also, it may have actually taken him some time to craft this documentary, because it's not just his notes about the savior of the entire world and his adventures on earth. Rather, it's a well-thought-out series of stories that all pull from the wars of the Jews, and tropes from the Septuagint, as well as Aramaic Targums. He creates illusions through symbolism, builds narratives from prior stories and changes the names, dates, and even the outcomes in some events. But these changes are what reveals what Mark's story is really about. And when read in contrast of each other, it tells a different story altogether. So in other words, if the reader of Mark's documentary had also read Josephus' Wars of the Jews, they would have immediately picked up on the trope. And, and would have understood what Mark's message was really about. What was he trying to convey to his audience? These Gentiles and Jewish-Greek-reading Christians, of course. Now, to me, guys, it appears that this author had several messages that he wanted to share with us, share his thoughts on, his opinions on. He was, on one hand, instructing how to retool Judaism literally creating Judaism 2.0. Because Judaism was not working, and many had been trying to fix it for centuries. And that he would replace the corrupted temple cult and its sacrifices, because they were no good anymore. Paul even says so 50 years prior, or 25 years prior. He also represented Vespasian as well as his son Titus, and their military campaigns to the point of destroying the corrupted temple and its cult, 
And he also uses Jesus to slam, to criticize how Vespasian handled the war. Did he really need to kill a million people, even innocent Jews? Did he need to burn down the city? Did he need to destroy their holy place? But ultimately, it was more or less a lesson that radical Judaism needed to stop before more innocent people died. Now, the Roman-Jewish War it brought serious and devastating results on the Jewish people, to the heart of the Jews. In addition to the loss of so many lives among the Jews, their city and temple were absolutely destroyed, burned down, leveled to the ground, to the point that anyone visiting decades later wouldn't even think the land was, was inhabited before. So this is what Josephus records in the words of the Jews. I now begin quote, The army now having no victims for slaughter or plunder, through lack of objects on which to vent their rage, Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was completely leveled to the ground as to leave the future visitors to the spot, new ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited before. Such was the end to which the frenzy of the revolutionaries brought to Jerusalem, that splendid city of the worldwide renown. Jewish Wars, Chapter 7 verses 1 through 4. Now, the bloody war started as a Jewish revolt against Roman occupation, and Rome responded with all of its military might, destroying Jerusalem and leveling its temple that had been the place of holy worship since it was built around 537 BCE, of course, after the Babylonians destroyed the first one. Now, the references that the author for Mark makes about the destruction of the temple is found in Mark 13, verse 2. And it reveals that he had knowledge of the temple coming down. And his readers would also understand the message because they would have also just lived through it. The events that were unfolding literally in front of them or were hearing about it while it was happening. So I think the first connection that Mark's readers would make to the war is a reference to a city that's called Caesarea Philippe. Now, Mark has this Jesus visit this village of Caesarea Philippe during his ministry in Galilee. It is there that Jesus' messianic status is actually declared. And then his journey to Jerusalem would begin. That's in Mark 8, verses 27 to 30. Now, according to Josephus' accounts of the war, the Roman general Vespasian, as well as his son Titus a little bit later, also visited the city and villages of Caesarea Philippe. Now, Vespasian, he rested there with his troops while being hosted by the Jewish king Agrippa II. And, and Vespasian gave thanksgiving to a god there for his successful military campaign in Galilee, where he had just killed several Jewish rebels of the revolt, as seen in um, Jewish Wars, chapter 3, verses 443 to 444. Now, evidently, Titus, too, took a little rest there shortly after the war. And Josephus describes how Titus entertained himself and his troops while hanging out there. And he played games with the Jewish prisoners, having them fight with wild beasts, as well as each other, and to the death. Jewish Wars 7, 23 to 24. He also celebrated his brother's birthday there with great splendor 
and also received a great news about the capture of the rebel leader, Simon bar Gioras. Jewish Wars, 732. Now, Mark's readers would have easily made the connection between the story about Jesus, his ministry in Galilee, his visit to Caesarea Philippi, his messiahship and his journey to Jerusalem, to the military campaign of Vespasian and Titus during the Roman Jewish Wars, including the rest at Caesarea Philippi, were also there where Vespasian received his messiahship, according to Josephus. Now, once Mark's readers picked up on all this, this trope, this symbolism, they quickly scoured his documentary for more illusions, for more symbolism, right? Looking for more clues. Why? Because the students of Greek literature all learned how to write this way, and it's called writing in myth. So break it down. Both Jesus and Vespasian started a campaign of some sort in Galilee near the sea, where literally both made fishers of men. Jesus created or got together his disciples and told them he's going to make them fishers of men. Where Vespasian literally had his soldiers on ships spearfishing soldiers, rebel soldiers of Jews, Jewish rebels in the sea, making them literally fishers of men. To both taking a rest at Caesarea Philippi, a village where both Vespasian and Jesus were anointed as messiahs, to where they would continue on to their trip and their journey to Jerusalem. Now, Mark's readers would quickly see that both Jesus' ministry and Vespasian's military campaign both began in Galilee and ended in Jerusalem. And these provide an identical link between the story about Jesus and the events of the war. Even in Mark's language that he uses about, in quotation, the good news. And the reference to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. It should be associated with the good news that is related to Vespasian's military victory and his rise in power and the claim to divine status. Because in the ancient world, military victories political success, and then entrance of a king or an emperor into a city were always celebrated as the good news. In fact, when Vespasian was proclaimed emperor because of his military achievement in Judea, the cities in the east received the report as the good news. Jewish Wars 4, 618. And upon his arrival in Alexandria, Egypt, the new emperor was greeted by the good news from Rome about Mucianus' victory against Vitellius, who also fought to gain the imperial throne. The people of Rome actually celebrated twofold good news. The good news of victory and the good news related to Vespasian's rise to imperial power. Now, both pieces of good news were marked during a single festival, as seen in the Jewish Wars four. 654 through 655. Now, with respect to Vespasian's divine status, he was hailed in divine terms as the savior and benefactor, master of the land and sea, master of the whole human race. Now, Mark's readers of his documentary about Jesus, no doubt, would have clearly associated these expressions with Vespasian. 
Also, Mark's proclamation about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, prepare the way of the Lord, makes his path straight, which is in chapter 1, verse 3, also would help drive Mark's readers to understand the connection to Vespasian, because the announcement, prepare the way and make it straight, also parallels Vespasian's entrance during the war. Now, according to Josephus, before the Romans entered Jotapata, the city of Jotapata, to destroy the city, along with the Jews who were hiding there, Vespasian ordered his troops to level out the road for easy passage there. And here's what Josephus tells us about that. Vespasian was impatient to make an end of Jotapata, having heard it was a refuge to which most of the enemy had retired, and that it was, moreover, their strong base. He accordingly sent a body of infantry and cavalry in advance to level the road, leading it to a stony mountain track, difficult for infantry and quite impractical for mounted troops. In four days, their task was completed and a broad highway was opened for the army. Jewish Wars 3, 141. Now Mark also mentions about Caesarea Philippe that would link Jesus to Vespasian is that located at the foot of Mount Hermon, the place was originally called Panaeus, literally after the Greek god Pan who was incidentally worshipped there. Then Herod the Great, he built a temple there for emperors to be worshipped instead of the Greek god. Then Herod Philip renamed the place to Caesarea Philippe, literally Caesar Philip, then converted it to his own capital, named after himself, of course. Now, in Mark, he has his Jesus visit the villages of Caesarea Philippe after his successful ministry in Galilee. And there, too, like Vespasian, is proclaimed Messiah. And, too, like Vespasian, begins his journey to Jerusalem. It's seen in Mark 8, 27-33. So, you see, it would be very easy for Mark's readers to make the connection here between Jesus and Vespasian they would immediately start looking for what the message was. Their journey to the same destination and both becoming messiahs. So the reader would immediately start looking for the clues. What were the differences? What were the similarities? What is this author trying to say based upon Vespasian and Jesus and the incidents that took place or the events that took place between the two different stories, right? They would quickly understand that Mark's gospel that Mark's documentary about this war is about the war that just happened, or perhaps even in recent history, according to the, the, the readers of Mark's gospel. Now, this is strongly supported by Josephus' mentioning of Vespasian's messianic status. Because when Mark's documentary was being composed, Vespasian had just become emperor just a few years prior, in the year 69. His rise to imperial power was associated with both his divine status and the messianic claims that were made about him. Now, first, after the fall of uh, Jotapata, Josephus said he actually prophesied. He dreamed he imagined that Vespasian would become emperor. And this is what he says in Wars of the Jews. You imagined, Vespasian, that in the person of Josephus, me, you have taken a mere captive. But I come to you as a messenger of greater destinies. You will be Caesar, Vespasian. You will become emperor. 
you and your son here. Bind me, and then more securely in chains and keep me for yourself. For you, Caesar, are not master of me only, but of land and sea and the whole human race. For myself, I ask to be punished by stricter custody, if I have dared to trifle with the words of God. Jewish Wars 3, 400-402. Now, clearly, clearly, Josephus is making this shit up. He didn't even write this until after Vespasian became emperor anyway. He didn't even, he didn't write the whole thing until after the war. Sometime after the war. It wasn't released until the year 75. But it doesn't matter. That's okay. Josephus is a bit of an exaggerator, which is important to learn. He um, embellishes a lot. And he certainly plays with the story a little bit, which is okay. Because Mark, the author for Mark, still borrows from it heavily. I'm going to read another passage here, and this one's super important. But it's a little ambiguous passage where Josephus is basically declaring and confirming that Vespasian was the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy from Isaiah 53 and Daniel 9 and others, of course. This is what he writes about it. <clears throat> but what more else all incited them, those Jewish revolutionaries, to the war was an ambiguous oracle. Likewise, found in their own sacred scriptures, to the effect that at the time one from their country would become ruler of all the world. This they understood to mean someone of their own race, and many of their wise men went astray in their interpretations of it. The oracle, however, in reality signified the sovereignty of Vespasian, who was proclaimed emperor on Jewish soil. Right there, Jewish Wars 6, 312-314. So let's just back up a little bit. Let's think about what we have so far in comparisons to Jesus and Vespasian. So this author for Mark is writing his documentary on the war of 66-70. to 70. He's making some clear, concise connections between Vespasian and Jesus. Starting off from mirroring the campaign, the military campaign. Beginning in Galilee with sea battle, fishers of men, with a little layover in Caesarea Philippe, where they both become messiahs, both achieve messianic status, and to where they all make their way onto Jerusalem to where one dies and the other one crushes a temple and the city and a million Jews. So that's where the interesting point is going to become with, with Jesus as he becomes the temple, right? You have to pay attention to that. As he becomes Judaism 2.0, retooled, replaces the temple sacrifice. For one, it doesn't exist anymore, but there's going to be some other political things that we're going to get into. And then we also have Josephus making the claim here that Vespasian is the fulfillment of prophecy. So we're going to keep reading through and see what else he says. But as of right now, just follow along with the story and start thinking ahead as we're going through this episode. Because we're connecting these dots together because it's not firm anywhere. I mean, people have been studying these connections and these allegories of symbolism forever. And without living in the first century, all we have is this words of the Jews and, you know, some archaeological evidence to kind of figure out what Mark was really trying to do. But let's just talk about this. Let's keep thinking about it. Now, many of the guys that we've already talked about, such as Simon Bargioris, who were leaders of the Jewish Revolution, all believed that they were of 
messianic status, or would at least earn that status by destroying the Romans and ultimately rule the world from a throne somewhere in Jerusalem. Now, these accounts seriously support a direct link between Peter's proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah and the messianic claims for Vespasian as fulfillment of the ambiguous Jewish oracle. Now, more than likely, Mark's readers of his um, documentary of the war evaluated Peter's proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah at Caesarea Philippi in terms of Vespasian, who just became emperor thanks to both messianic and divine claims made about him. Now, there's another story that Mark talks about, how Jesus enters into Jerusalem from his trip from Caesarea Philippi while riding on a donkey. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now this too, I believe, links Mark's gospel to the war, making it a documentary about the war. Now on Mark's episode, it's been commonly viewed as a messianic journey that expresses Jesus' lowly messiahship in contrast to the more nationalistic, imperialistic expectations of the day. Now in this way, Jesus' march into Jerusalem reflects some messianic pretensions that were made by some of the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders of the rebellion during that war. Now, there's a couple different schools of thought here, depending on your point of view, your point of view of the war. So far in the story that Mark is giving us and all the symbolism and all the metaphor, Jesus appears to be representing Vespasian, clearly, and also seemingly in a good light but reading into it not so much with respect to the rebels and the problems that they were causing. Now, one example may be we have a rebel leader by the name of Menahem, or Menachem, it's pronounced both ways, who broke into King Herod's armory at Mazada. And there he took arms, and he marched 33 miles to Jerusalem. And just like a true king, according to Josephus, in Jewish Wars 2, 433 to 444, and then he appeared in the holy temple in audacious royal robes. Jewish Wars 2, 444. We also have a guy who will play many important roles in Mark's documentary, named Simon Bargioris, who, along with his counterpart, John Geshala, who also were leaders of the Sicarii. Simon also made some messianic pretensions during the war himself. First, he made a royal-like proclamation of liberty for the slaves and reward for the free. Jewish Wars 4, 508. And then his followers were obedient to his command as to a king. Jewish Wars 4, 510. And then finally, shortly after the fall of Jerusalem and its temple, he emerged out of the catacombs or the tombs, Simon did, where the temple once stood, wearing a white tunic and buckling over his purple mantle. Basically, you can kind of see a robe wearing this white outfit with this purple thing over his shoulders, you know, kind of like a robe. Now, you can imagine a purple cape even draped over his back, appearing very regal. Now, both he and John, they were hiding in the tombs when the temple was under attack and were forced to come out and surrender after not having access to any food or any water for several days. And there's another clever illusion that Mark pulls from this scene. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, where there's actually a man who's possessed by devils, who exits a tomb, a catacomb, 
And Jesus removes these demons, and they all enter into a herd of 200 swine that plunge into the ocean and drown. A couple of allusions here. Josephus constantly refers to the rebels as wicked and devils and even swine. So throw in a, an exiting a tomb and having Jesus remove the devil from a man, you pretty much have the same scene. Plus the 200 swine and the drowning also have some significance to the war as well. Where literally, we're told by Josephus that upon during the war, 200 Jews were forced to jump into the river where they ultimately drowned. But I think that the actions of both Menahem and Simon, the rebel leaders, suggest that the two were making messianic pretensions. Being kings, being royal, being better than they should be, bigger than they should be. Not, that is not what the messianic expectation was. Now, that's the point I think Mark wants to make about the leadership of the revolt. That's why he has his Jesus enter Jerusalem as a king who is meek and lowly. Now, this is probably sounding familiar if you're recalling some previous episodes they did, because this is a trope that actually comes from another story that Mark pulls found in Zechariah 9, verse 9, where Cyrus the Great enters Jerusalem on a donkey as well. Well, in actuality, according to Zechariah 9, 9, a mother donkey and her baby, which is logistically impossible or physiologically impossible. But Mark leaves the baby out in this particular story, where Matthew actually decides to throw the baby back in. But in Zechariah, the author tells the people who see Cyrus the Great riding into Jerusalem, Behold, this is your king, and he is meek. So Mark makes two points here. One is, Jesus is a king who is strong and powerful, yet not representing Roman imperialism like Vespasian, as well as not pretentious royalty like Simon and John, who were a mockery to kingship, especially over the Jews. Mark wants to create the illusion that Jesus is more like Cyrus the Great who freed the Jews with peace from the Babylonians in 586 BCE. Mark pulls this directly from the Greek Septuagint, which is the Hebrew version of Jewish scripture. Now, I guess we should consider the other side of this illusion. What if Mark is actually trying to make the comparison to Titus and Cyrus the Great? So, we can only imagine that Titus making his way in, probably very much on the royal side. Probably like this six-foot-long King Arthur sword, big chest shield, big steel helmet, and probably with a purple cape around his back. Maybe that was against Roman imperialism. But I guess not. Mark's gospel, his documentary, seems to be more aimed at the, um, at the leaders of the Jewish revolt, at Simon Bar-Urus and with John. Then it gets more interesting about what Mark has Jesus saying about the temple being turned into a den of robbers instead of being a house for international prayer. Mark eleven seventeen, Because this entire scene clearly represents exactly what Mark's opinion was about the temple in the final years that it was still standing. Now this author has Jesus speaking to an audience inside the temple grounds. And he has him say, 
Is it not written, My house shall be a house for prayer of nations? But you have instead made it a house for robbers. Now this scene mirrors an event that was happening during the war, when the Jewish rebels decided to occupy the temple and even use it for their fortress. So yes, indeed, during Mark's time and his audience reading his documentary on the war, zeolots most definitely have turned the temple into a den of thieves or a den of robbers. Now, in fact, Josephus frequently uses the term Leiston to refer to Jewish revolutionaries, zeolots and Sicarii. So when Mark uses the word Leistes, makes a clear link to the Sicarii, and not just robbers in a metaphorical sense. Mark directs the reader to exactly what he means, exactly to what he meant when he was making this reference. But even more significantly, Josephus shows us that during the war, the zealots invaded the sanctuary, Jewish Wars 4, 1500, and made it their stronghold. They had converted the temple of sacrifices to God until their military fortress and refuge from any outbreak of violence and made the holy place the headquarters of their tyranny. Jewish Wars 4, 151, 4, 172, 261 to 262. Now furthermore, Mark's little speech that he has his Jesus give also reflects his opinion about the revolutionaries' termination of the sacrifice offerings that were being made by the Gentiles to the temple. Now the Romans, they were Gentiles. Therefore, according to the Sicarii, the Sicarii leaders, well, they didn't want whatever they had to offer. Unfortunately, those burnt offerings to the temple by the Gentiles were on behalf of the Caesar. And this was the last straw that actually provoked the war with Rome. Because according to Josephus, Eleazar Benananius, also would be named Lazarus in Greek, became the high priest of the temple, but during the war he was captain of the temple. And he persuaded the temple officials responsible for the temple services to no longer accept any gifts or sacrifices from any foreigners, which was an action that laid the foundation of the war with the Romans, because such sacrifices were offered on behalf of both the nations and the emperor in Rome. Jewish Wars 2.409 and 2.404. So you see, the rejection of gifts and sacrifices from foreigners was, in other words, a refusal to collect tribute for Rome. That's right. When the Jewish rebels moved into the temple and made it their fortress for war and refused gifts from Gentiles, the Roman emperor wasn't getting his cut. And that is serious. That's financial compensation, and that means war. Now, this action the Romans considered was an act of rebellion directly against the emperor himself, not just the mere people of Rome. Now, moreover, the rejection of sacrifices from foreigners was also an act of not letting Gentiles worship in the temple as well. Such an act implied denying the sanctuary its role as a house of prayer for all nations, as Mark has his Jesus say.
So Jesus saying inside the temple was directly making the comparison to this unforgettable event during that period of the war because it set off that result in the deaths of millions of people. This entire situation of the war is also cleverly crafted in Mark 13, where he has as Jesus make some predictions, or as Christians will say, prophecies. Now, keeping in mind, to Mark, Jesus is Judaism, retooled, or Judaism 2.0. His Jesus is the non-militaristic Messiah who takes the fall of the temple and the sins of the Jews and removes the entire need for the temple sacrifices altogether. People from all nations, Jews and Gentiles, can worship from anywhere and not have to offer up a burnt sacrifice. However, tithing is okay and required. But in Mark chapter 13, he has this Jesus give some warnings and some prophecies that would be clear to his readers at the time that it came with a lesson attached. That is his entire documentary. It came with a lesson attached. Now, Jesus warns that people will try to lead them astray by someone who comes in his name. Chapter 13, verse 5. And incidentally, the names assigned to Jesus are all allegory to Savior, Savior Messiah, God Savior. So the name could also be basically Christos or Christos, which is an anointed one for Messiah in Greek. All relating to the Greek word Yeshua. Now Mark's Jesus is warning that some may come claiming to be an anointed leader, as prophesied in scripture, that would lead them astray. He also warns that there will be rumors of war, nations rising up against nations, persecution and betrayal within families. Mark chapter 13, verse 9 through 13. We also get the desolation of sacrilege in Jerusalem to even fake messiahs, false prophets. Chapter 13, 21 and 22. And then omens followed by great suffering. Now let's break this down a little bit and try to understand how Mark was making a connection to the war. The warnings to not be led astray by false messiahs and false prophets and that they will come in my name is a direct connection to Simon Bargioris and his counterpart John, who led the revolt between 66 and 70, who took control of the temple and recruited thousands of Jews to fight in his war against Rome. Mark also making a future warning in his own time, acknowledging that even though the war has ended, the false prophets and messiahs were still out trying to round up troops to continue the war to go for round two. And Mark was right. Because 35 years later, another Jewish uprising did happen called the Keto Wars. Picked up from 115 all the way to 117, led by Lucas. And again, another million Jews died at the hand of this second rebellion. Mark knew that it was imminent because he's writing probably that five to ten years after the event. And he hears the rumors of war, that Jewish leaders are still uprising, calling themselves anointed ones and messiahs and prophets, and they're rounding up the troops again, 
And sure enough, 35 years later, we get round number two. Now, when Mark's Jesus references the famines to come, well, it reminds Mark's readers what happened during the siege of Jerusalem. Nobody could forget, especially reading the words of the Jews. Now, Josephus goes into great detail, talking about the horror the famine caused when Titus encircled the city and cut the Jews off from food and water during a, a massive Jewish festival when millions of Jews came from every nation to attend. There were millions of Jews celebrating their culture in Jerusalem when Titus decides to attack. So here's what Josephus says. The victims of the famine were dropping in countless numbers. A shadow of food was a sign of war. And the dearest of relatives fell to blows, snatching from each other the pitiful supports of life. Necessity drove the victims to gnaw on anything, and objects which even the filthiest of brute beasts would reject. They condescended to collect and eat. Thus, in the end, they abstained not from belts and shoes, and stripped off and chewed the very leather of their bucklers. Jewish Wars 6, 193-197 And actually, it was way more horrific than that, because Josephus also talks about it got so bad, it got so bad for days, that the inhabitants of the city had no access to food and no access of water. And if somebody did have food and the soldiers were watching, they would be instantly killed. The Roman soldiers were watching them literally die. But not only by starvation and dehydration, but they were eating their dead. That's right. That's how bad it got. So if you were reading this in the Wars of the Jews or had heard about it, and you were lucky enough not to be attending the festival, you heard that family members were eating others who had died. And then the references that Mark's Jesus makes about persecution and betrayal among family members, as found in chapter 13, verses 9 through 13, reflects the suffering during and after the war towards all the Jews. Not just the revolutionaries, but man, woman, and child. This was because... Even though they had suffered so much destruction, they still refused to accept the Caesar as their Lord and Savior. This was something that every Roman citizen had to do in order to live within the empire. And their refusal to do so was a major reason for not only the war, but continued hardship, persecution, and betrayal for centuries to come. And here's what Josephus has to say about it. For under every form of torture and laceration of the body, devised for the sole object of making them Jews acknowledge Caesar as Lord, no one submitted nor was brought to the verge of utterance, but all kept their resolve, triumphant over constraint, meeting the tortures and the fires with bodies that seemed insensible of pain and souls that well night exalted in it. But most of all were spectators struck by the children of a tender age, not one of whom could be prevailed upon to call Caesar as Lord. So far did the strength of the courage rise superior to the weakness of their frames. Jewish Wars 7, 418-419 So as you can clearly see, this demonstrates that Vespasian was dead set on 
torturing the surviving Jews after the temple and city had gone down to calling him Lord and Savior, even to the point of death, and they still continued to refuse. The war was not over yet. Now, I believe the point that Mark wants to make here to his future readers, based off this passage in the Jewish wars, is that because of the war that the revolutionaries brought on to themselves would leave a long-lasting impact on everyone and anyone that refuses to acknowledge Vespasian as their Lord, including Jewish Christians. Now, truth be told, Gentiles living in the Roman provinces knew better. But the Jews who continued to hold their ground, as they have for centuries, would be tortured, caught on fire, and beaten. Evidently, this included women and children as well, it seems. Then when Mark has us, Jesus mentioned the desolation of sacrilege and the suffering thereafter. Chapter 13, verses 14 to 23. While this is making the connection to the grand entrance by Titus and his troops as they marched into the temple court. Now Josephus, he reports that when the temple was in flames, the Roman troops carried their standards into the temple court and setting them up opposite the eastern gates their sacrifice to them, and with rousing acclamations, hailed Titus as imperator. Jewish Wars 6, 316. Now shortly after this desolating sacrilege, Titus ordered the execution of the temple priests who were still inside. Jewish Wars 6, 322. After that, he ordered that the temple be leveled to the ground, then continued with the entire city of Jerusalem that he cut off from food and water to the point the Jews began to eat their dead. Now this passage in Mark 13 would be a two-point message, actually. I think the arrogance of Titus and what the rebellion brought on to its own people. A stark reminder to those who were thinking that they haven't had enough yet and still wanted to wage war against the Romans. That's ultimately what Mark was trying to tell his fellow Jews. That through his Jesus, you can find comfort. You can find salvation without the need of the temple or its sacrifices. He literally is retooling Paul's Christianity and using his gospel, his documentary, to symbolically allude to the destruction of the temple and the rebelling Jews as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in 9.25, as well as fixed a problem that Paul created by telling his congregations that the end would, end would come with Jesus where he would be living, you know, judging the living and the dead in their lifetimes. Because Paul was an Enochian. That's right. Paul's theology was based off Enochian literature who understood that the Son of Man, or Enoch, the chosen one by God himself, was coming any day now. Unfortunately for Paul's communities and Paul's congregations, well, Jesus never came. The end never came. They, they didn't all fly up on a cloud to heaven together, like Paul was teaching. And Paul dies... Congregants are dying. Time goes on. Another, another 25 years, right? 
And Paul's congregations are wondering, well, are, what, what's happening with my parents and my kids and my grandparents who are, who are dying? Are, 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 they, are, they, are they not going with Jesus? Jesus hasn't come yet. It proposed the problem that Mark had to fix. But there are other ways that I will demonstrate the late dating of Mark and that he uses his documentary to reflect on the war shortly after the release of Josephus' Wars of the Jews, 75 CE. Also, we need to consider who he's hoping to reach out to because he does invoke a series of moral, political, and sociological lessons here, even pulling from a contemporary pacifist philosopher and scholar named Musinius Rufus, who was also a Greek Stoic. But the obvious group would be for the Greek-speaking Jews living in Judea, Galilee, in southern Syria, perhaps Alexander Egypt, and obviously Rome. Now, I say Greek-speaking and reading Jews because they needed to be more aware of the war, not so much through memory and experience, but also finding the parallels in the works of Josephus, having read the book. Now, like I said before, the Greeks and the Jews loved finding clues for the true message. Both cultures were well-experienced in symbolism, the use of allusions, metaphor, and exaggeration. Now, additionally, Mark caters to both the Jews who knew their scripture to catch the allusions and comparisons that he wanted to make. Even Gentiles who were excited about their new religion could have caught the literary parallels between his documentary on the war and the use of scripture. But he also uses a quite a bit of Homer, a Greek author of both the Iliad and Odysseus, to also create the same illusions for Gentiles. But here is the criteria that we will use to identify how to date Mark through correlation between the wars of the Jews and the secret messages hidden inside of Mark's documentary. One, the names of places. Two, geographical proximity. Three, formation. Four, people and empires five verbal parallels, and six specific events. Now, the names of places considers the locations where the first phase of Vespasian's and Jesus' campaigns both began. As we talked about before, Vespasian, his assault on the rebels, and for Jesus, his gathering of disciples and preaching. Now, both Vespasian and Jesus begin their campaigns in Galilee, and both stopped for a visit at Caesarea Philippi after they finished what they needed to get done. So this criteria involves two significant places, Galilee and Caesarea Philippi. Now Josephus, he describes Jewish Galilee during his day by defining its boundaries, in terms of surrounding territories, of course, having shown the country with its two parts, upper and lower Galilee, it was enclosed by Phoenicia and Syria as the borders of Galilee. Now, according to Josephus, the region of Ptolemais, Mount Caramel, and Gaba lay on the western side, while Samaria and Scythopolis on the south, and Gadara, Hippos, and Gualanitas to the east, and Tyre on the north, according to Jewish Wars 335-40. 
The importance of Galilee that we want to understand is that both Vespasian and Jesus began their campaigns there before ultimately heading to Jerusalem. Now, the author for Mark primarily has his Jesus based in Galilee, Capernaum being the headquarters of his ministries, as seen in chapter 1, verse 21, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 19, and chapter 6, verse 1. In the villages and countryside of Galilee and its neighboring regions, Mark will have his Jesus go out and he'll heal, drive out demons, teach lessons, feed the hungry, and perform other random miracles that were all seemingly rewrites of Old Testament stories. With one exception, though, Jesus did the miracles just a little bit better than Moses, Elisha, and Elijah, Old Testament prophets, because Jesus is Judaism 2.0. His teachings were in defiance of the teachings of the Sanhedrin, the greed and the corrupted temple cult, and were about promoting peace and separating itself from the temple cult. Now, the more I think about it, Mark's gospel slash documentary also may have been an attempt to demonstrate how he had wished Vespasian's campaign went versus the magnitude of death and destruction that it brought in reality. Now, beyond Galilee and its neighboring regions that appear after Mark chapter 8, Jesus does not perform any life-giving miracles apart from the exorcism of a demon that had oppressed the boy of his childhood, as seen in chapter 9, verses 14 through 20, and the restoration of Bartimaeus' sight in Jericho, as seen in 10, 46 through 52. But Vespasian also begins his military campaign in Galilee before he advances to besiege on Jerusalem. He was coming from Rome, via Antioch and Ptolemaeus in Syria, Vespasian entered Galilee with his mighty Roman army. We're told of 60,000 soldiers. Probably an exaggeration, maybe not. But this is in Jewish Wars 329, 69, and 127. So while Jesus' ministry was focused in the village and the countryside and sought to bring people to life, Vespasian's campaign was focused on fortified cities destroying the life of the Jews that he thought were participating in the revolt against Rome. It would be understood by Mark's readers that with the similarities of campaigns between Jesus and Vespasian from the same cities, in the same order, and with receiving a messiahship, that there is an important connection that this author is trying to make for his readers. On one hand, Jesus is doing a remake of Jewish scripture, placing himself in the roles of Moses and Elisha, Elijah, to demonstrate that he is the good news, same as Vespasian, and replacing them with a retooled religion. And on the other hand, he's demonstrating that the Jews who were revolting against Rome brought destruction from Vespasian versus peace. In other words, the radical Messianic Jews brought death to themselves because they wouldn't side with peace. Now, regarding the city of Caesarea Philippe, this was the city that was built by Herod Philip at the base of Mount Hermon, right by the source of the Jordan River in the district of Panaeus. Named in honor of Caesar Tiberius, it served as Philip's capital, as seen in Jewish Wars 1, 168. In modern times, the place is known as Banias, 
However, during the time of the war, the city was within the territory of Herod Agrippa II, according to Jewish Wars 3443. Both Vespasian and Mark's Jesus visited this area after their campaigns in Galilee were finished. Vespasian, along with his troops, was hosted by Agrippa II, and it was there that Vespasian gave thanks to a god for his military success against the Jewish fighters. Jewish Wars 3, 443, the 444. And Josephus tells us that Vespasian visited Caesarea Philippe in the summer of 67, shortly after Josephus prophesied that he would become emperor there and master of the land and sea and of the entire human race. Jewish Wars 3, 401 to 402, which was eventually realized in the summer of 69, Jewish Wars 4, 601 to 655. So the parallel here is, shortly after both Jesus and Vespasian complete their ministry or their military campaign in Galilee, they both made a short stop in the village of Caesarea Philippe, where they both were proclaimed as messiahs before they both ventured off to Jerusalem. Thank you for listening. This has been a Skeptical Ghost Heathen production.